This is David Rovix, and you are tuned to 3CR, 8.55 a.m., Melbourne, Australia. Step three is finding there's a tactic when everyone believes it could be true. That if all the people work collectively, there just might be something we can do, and everything can change. Good evening, listeners, and welcome to the Beyond Zero Emissions radio show. And salut Babette in Paris, and Stephen in Sydney. They're the two people who let us know they're listening. And listeners, we will always thank you on air if you give us some feedback. So you know how to do it. Just contact us and we will definitely mention your name on air. Tonight's climate action is about emergencies, preparing for them, learning from mistakes and planning differently. We will hear from the head of the National Resilience Task Force, Mark Crossweiler. He was speaking at a conference I went to organised by NCARF. They um, organise things about climate adaptation. And after we hear from Mark, it's just a talk, a small part of the talk Mark gave, then we'll hear from Councillor Joe Dodds from Beagashire in New South Wales. I hope, listeners, you'll remember the Tarthra bushfire. It was very late in the season this year. The helicopters apparently had gone home and it was really, they weren't prepared very much for it and it shocked them. 64 houses were lost. And then the Prime Minister came down and he said that this was not a time to be talking about climate change. And Jo Dodds, who was in the council then, and she said she'd been sort of going quiet on climate change in a way, but this brought it to the fore. She said, this is the very time we have to be talking about climate change. And so I, I really enjoyed, I met her in Bega. I sat in the Bega library and she gave me a fabulous interview. She's a writer, so she speaks in a very expressive way as well. Uh, and then at 5.30, we're going to talk to Professor Rob Rogama about a different sort of emergency. It's one that's very predictable in Bangladesh. He's a professor of um, urban planning, sustainability and food sources in cities. And um, he's been working in collaboration with someone who was on this program called Dr. Salim al They're going to collaborate um, in how to adapt life for people in a mega city like Dakar. Um, before we go on, I'd like to mention my late mother, Bessie, on this theme. We've been hearing a lot on 3CR about NADOC's week, that theme, because of her we can, and it made me think about an emergency that my mother faced bravely during the war. She was on duty in a small bush nursing hospital down in the Latrobe Valley, and a bushfire was sweeping down towards them, and she decided to evacuate the young mothers and babies who were in the hospital to go down and sit in the creek until it passed over. The fire didn't burn the hospital, so they were able to go back, but she was then up for the next two days and nights with burn victims coming in pretty regularly. And they were brought in there in a pitiful state and the nurses could do nothing about it because they had no blood plasma because all the blood plasma had been sent to the war effort. My mother never wanted to talk about this. It was one of her most horrible memories but my Auntie Betty sent the photo of my mother, or oh, they weren't married then, to my father, who, um, who was up in the islands, and I think maybe that photo just clinched it for him. Now, psychologists tell us not to talk too much about the horror of climate change because it makes people switch off and paralyzes action. So I'm in a dilemma here because this whole program is about climate change, but it's about climate action, and that's where BZE comes in. It's always about, well, what can we do? Roll up our sleeves, what can we do? 
We don't want to be like that little hospital, helpless without any plasma. And so my antidote, my antidote is to, well, to get prepared and to go and talk to the people who are preparing. Craig Lapsley, who's a um, commissioner for um, emergencies in Victoria, said at the NCAF conference, there will be an increase in emergency days. We know that now, and we should not underestimate the social dislocation, even family violence, which will follow in the wake of emergencies. So by bringing you these voices, I hope we can learn how to respond, where to go, and who to trust. If these things are missing in our communities now, it's the time to be putting them in place. So the first speaker is Mark Crossweiler speaking about the Canberra bushfires where four people died and hundreds of houses were lost. And then he mentions the 2009 fires in Victoria where 173 people died. He faces up honestly to unsuccessful actions and he says that the main thing to come out of the inquiry wasn't the absence of public warning. So this is where the radio comes in and the media. It's very important that they communicate with the media the correct message. At one stage in Canberra, they just didn't know what to say to the media, he said, and they locked the doors. I think he's very honest. It's interesting to hear what he says. He emphasises that they need, they need, the emergency services need to be better at getting through with trusted mission, messengers before a crisis. It's not just the first responders, but all of us who need to know what to do. So let's hear Mark Crossweiler. So there is this erosion, I think, of, of the ethical, what I call the ethical premise. And um, by way of practical example, I think, uh, in our business, I'll just take you through a couple of um, the big crises that most people would know about, starting with Canberra. And, um, of course, we lost um, four people and 488 homes in Canberra. And... Uh, about, I think the damage estimates were just short, short of a billion dollars, I think. Um, and um, a very, very unsuccessful operation, of course. And uh, have, having been there on the day and um, was sent down from Sydney uh, on behalf of New South Wales to provide advice to the ACT authorities. And look, anything I say here, I've got to say, is couched in the terms of industry um, values and behaviours, not individuals. So individuals were simply agents of industry culture. Does that make sense? So I'm not critical of any individual. I really need to stress that. that People operate within systems and cultures and really do do the best they can. But, but nonetheless, um, there was a lot of t- tension between two jurisdictions, um, you know, go- government, government jurisdictions about strategy and tactic to how to manage that fire. And I was asked to go down and negotiate the complexity of that and, um, and was un- unable to convince the authorities on the 18th of January, just prior to the fire takers running to Canberra, to change the tactic and take more resource and make some adjustments and I wasn't able to convince them to do so. And, um, and they'd almost convinced me that despite um, my analysis and, and you know, the experiences I had in New South Wales that, that I, I was wrong and they were right. And so it's one of these great moments of leadership where you get challenged on your ethics and um, just as a personal reflection. And I stepped out of that operations room and went white as a ghost and felt like throwing up. Because um, I doubted myself, I sort of thought, "Crikey, that you know, they're, they're right, I'm wrong." But but every, everything intuitively said, in fact, the exact opposite. And I've kind of had this little moment of what I would call enlightenment, where I realised that that uh, they were wrong, I wasn't wrong. But in fact, I think I had to I had to stick to my metal and and um, continue. So so here's an officer out of, outside of jurisdiction with no powers, authorities, resources, nor permission to do anything. And so one of those great questions of ethics: so what do you do? And um, so the law said, and, and you know, logic and reason says, well, there's nothing more you can do. You've got to stay within the bounds of rules. 
uh, and you'll be fine. You've done you've done all you can. But but the moral premise is no, no. You need to step outside of that and go and do something. So I went and did something. So I left the ACT, went across to Queanbeyan, and um, had a stand-up row with the district superintendent. <laughs> Uh, he used to be a former regimental sergeant major of the Australian Army. You ever heard them yell on a parade ground? Because that's how he yelled at me. <coughs> Fortunately, he was subordinate to me in rank, and it was the only time in my career I ever pulled rank on an officer and, and directed him to release resource, and he, he did finally forgive me after about 18 months. But, um, but the reason I raise it is that sometimes, and in my PhD, I've looked at normative ethics through you know, virtue ethics and deontology and utilitarianism, and they're all, they're all applicable. And we should use them all, you know, as rules-based or outcomes-based or character-based. But what it, what it taught me in Canberra was that ultimately it was ethics of character, that, had to, that when, when the rules stopped working and I couldn't necessarily act for the greater good, um, that it came down to questions of character. And I think that in leadership that's a fundamental question in society about the ethics of character. Um, we go forward to 2009 and um, we had an even bigger event, of course, which was the Victorian fires and we lost... 173 people in 2,000 homes, and I think the damage estimates around two and a half billion, or, or somewhere between two and a half and four billion. Um, again, a very unsuccessful operation. And the thing I found that, uh, most most compelling, I think, between 2003 and 2009, just prior to that February event, was how much blame was in the system, and, and how much abrogation and finger pointing and, uh, and anger and uh, and so on and so forth. And so much so that you know people stopped speaking, so they stopped talking to each other about what they'd learnt and, and how they felt and what they'd experienced. And people were told to lawyer up for the inquiries and not, not bad advice. You know, that's how we structure society and navigate through these complexities. But, but we robbed ourselves of something and it was a capacity to learn, to listen and to learn. And um, so what, I was there in Canberra on the day when the authorities had to close the doors to the media, literally lock them out of the operations centre because they didn't know what to say to them. They'd lost control, they'd lost situational awareness, they'd lost control and no longer had advice. They no longer could be useful to society in terms of warnings. And ironically, that's what happened in Victoria, that the absence of public warnings and information was one of the biggest outcomes of the 2009 inquiry. So you look at sort of the behaviours in the system and the lack of ethics and the lack of incapacity through, you know, through virtual, what I would call virtuosity to forgive and so on and so forth was... Was, was constraining, severely constraining in terms of formulation of good public policy. You go across to 2011-12 into Perth and they lost 86 homes, but no lives, um, no lives were lost and very few injuries, um, but still not successful. So we've gone from you know, 500 homes, 2,000 homes, 86 homes, four lives, 173 lives, no lives, and the Perth fire was so unsuccessful that they um, sacked the chief officer, the chief executive, uh, decommissioned the authority, rewrote the legislation and ins- installed the government department with a new commissioner over 86 homes. And Mick Kelty asked the question in the special inquiry in, in WA, he said, how do you measure success in such circumstance? And it's a profound question he didn't answer, but we had a really good look at it and it, came, it essentially came down to this, that, that uh, the industry was speaking to society through numbers and figures and... and um, trying to justify its positioning through, um, through those things. And uh, I can't stress enough how much crisis in whatever aspect you deal with is, is as much a matter of the head as it is the heart. And so science is very important and logic and reason is very important, but so are the social sciences and the psychologies and even the theologies and the philosophies that attach. They're equally as important. And uh, we were only speaking to one part of the equation and people couldn't hear us. And not only that, we were quite, uh, it's quite self-focused in our, in our narratives and quite 
jargonistic. So, so what I'm trying to point to is that we had lost public trust and confidence uh, in in society and for uniform services and those that attach and governments that support. Uh, once that uh, once that's gone, the game's over, really, and it's very very hard to recover. Um, so the two ethics I would speak to. Um, in crisis management, but I think it needs to be pervasive in how we deal with climate, and hopefully we'll get to talk a bit more about this in conversation, is that the upholding of public trust and confidence has to be uh, the greatest measure of success in public life and institutional life. And you're seeing that eroded every day in the media through institutions that don't get that at all and take take us for fools on some level. And, um, and my colleagues had left... I'm, I'm sorry, I didn't take... Uh, use the term blissful ignorance and willful blindness and it's almost word for word what I use uh, I use the term blissful ignorance through to willful neglect and most of it is towards willful neglect about what we actually know but what we don't share with people, what we don't tell people so the first ethical premise I think is the upholding of public trust and confidence, I think the second premise we should always hold as, as high as trust is the notion of compassion or the uh, reduction of human suffering and in, in my career, 34 years, everything really ought to have been uh, dedicated to those two premises in leadership. And um, because we place things upon the landscape and the way we plan, the way we construct, the way we design as an anticipatory way of dealing with the future through risk, and inherently we, we plant harms as we go. So we have the obligation to reduce them as much as possible. And, and I'm seeing a society that has lost that Understanding and Hugh McKay released a book last week at the ANU, actually called Reimagining in Australia, and he talked about you know there's over two two million of us clinically diagnosed with depression and another two million clinically diagnosed with anxiety, and 65,000 of us try and take our lives every day, every year, and um, and we have a real problem in society with confidence and with with the effects of individualism and the breaking of social connection. And, and he advocates, as, as I have done for a number of years, the notion to reintroduce compassion into society in very, very practical and pragmatic ways that can help to reduce some of those harms. Welcome back to the Beyond Zero Mission Show. Listeners, um, the next interview is with Jo Dodds. When Malcolm Turnbull came to Tathra this year, she came out in the media saying, this is the very time we need to be talking about climate change, not denying it as he sort of was. We experience, with experience in, so, um, she has got experience in local government and so she sees the strain on public figures and I think she was very fair to Malcolm Turnbull in her interview. But with a writer's eye to detail and emotion and feeling, she tells us what we really need to know. Joe Dodds. Here, this is normal 
and you can expect this to happen again in the future and nothing will have changed. And I was just livid because by then I knew that my friends and neighbours had lost their homes and everything in them, like many of them had left with literally the clothes on their back. If they were lucky, they had their car as well and their pets and that was it. So I just watched my friends and neighbours lose every possession they owned and heard the Prime Minister say, nothing to see here, this is normal, it'll happen again, we're not going to intervene. So I was furious. And when he said, it's not the time to politicise it, it's like shutting down discussion, isn't it? It's like saying, this is unseemly, this is rather indecent, these poor people are suffering, I'm on their side, and you climate activists are sort of making it into something that it's not. Exactly. And and having stood there, I felt this raw grief for my community. I was standing in a a blackened forest where every landmark I'm familiar with had changed and, and I'll never see those landmarks again. So everything was changed in my world and to be told that to speak about the cause was to politicise it, that was the double insult. That was the bit where I was being told, shush now, don't step out of line, don't cause trouble don't name the cause. And, you know, later I I was thinking about that, that whatever the cause of the fire is, we need to talk about it if we want to avoid happening again, what just happened. So, And I was thinking, what if the fire had been lit by an arsonist? From the second the community knew, that would have been the topic of conversation and nobody would have said, that's not appropriate to talk about. It's not appropriate to talk about how the fire started. People would have talked about it and there would have been action about it. Mm-hmm. In this case, what fueled that fire, what made it so devastating in mid-March, which is not summer, mm-hmm. it should be safe and we'd all relaxed, what made it so devastating was the climate. It was windy beyond anything I'd experienced before and it was 35, 36 degrees, which is unusual for March. And if that's not bad enough, a month later, deeply into autumn, in mid-April we had a day that was 39 degrees. So there's a climate crisis going on. That's why our fire was so devastating. All right. Well, do you think the PM was speaking to this community, and it is a political thing, this is a vote winner to say, oh, climate change, you know, well, we're dealing it with, with our pathetic policies. Um, we're having, maybe having another election this year, and maybe climate will again be something that becomes like taboo to talk about. Do you think the Prime Minister, however, down here misjudged this community? Because I think you've done many things here to show that you know about you reducing emissions, including huge signs on the beach and a huge sign on the water tower. I, yeah, I look, and, and in many ways, I, I'm, look, I'm prepared to forgive and forget. Well, not forget. I'm prepared to have a conversation with the Prime Minister about where we move forward from this. I, it, my door is open. I just hope that his heart is open. I think he was ill-advised because anyone who knows Tarthra knows what our community's been doing over the last 12 years to raise awareness of climate change and to raise understanding that renewable energy works, it's effective, it's economical and it reduces our risk of that very event happening because it addresses the issue the issue of the release of CO2. So Tarthra the town that the, the fire ended up in, and it hit some other places before it hit Tarthra too, so I wanted to acknowledge that, that there was Reedy Swamp and Vimy Ridge as well. But Tarthra 
has water towers with a huge sign emblazoned on them, 50-50 by 2020. We've, all got, we've got bumper stickers throughout the Shire that say the same thing. We've had over 3,000 people turn up on the beach to form human signs saying clean energy fraternity. And then we all formed a sign saying imagine. And then we thought that was so good that eventually <laughs> we managed to raise enough money to buy solar panels and make them into a permanent sign that also says imagine. And that now powers our water sewerage treatment plant in Tartara mm-hmm. um, and and saves council a lot of money along the way. And that was um, largely funded by community, just all chipping in and buying panels each. So as a community, we have absolutely done the best job any town, a little town of, I don't mm. know what we are, 1,200 people. We have punched way above our weight in that. We've done our best mm. to, to bring this issue to national attention and we've taken it beyond the borders of Tarthra. Yeah. We've we've opened up Clean Energy for Eternity. That's the, the group that formed after we all went onto the beach that day. That group has now had chapters in Mosman and, mm-hmm. you know, through Canberra and we're everywhere throughout New South Wales and beyond. And there's a huge awareness of us and we've done a lot of good work putting solar panels onto all the community buildings, for instance, in Tartara. So it's on the rural fire sheds, it's on the schools, it's on the halls, it's yeah. on surf life-saving. So to not know that about us and then come to us and say we were politicising the disaster was a really... It was a tin ear. And I don't yeah. know what the melting point of tin is, but um, I wish that the Prime Minister had stood next to me during that fire and watched that and mm. we could have talked during the horror mm. of witnessing what climate change can do. Well, I wish he'd listened to this program too because I've interviewed someone from down here saving the Great Southern Forest and he made a film called Understory and he told me how for 40 years people have been fighting here against the logging. 40 years, it's the people are elderly now who started out and the Prime Minister could have seen that film and seen how passionate people are about that because that's another thing about climate change to keep the carbon in the ground, not just mm-hmm. coal and gas. But I heard you speaking at Collingwood Town Hall and you were on the same platform as Bill McKibben and he'd come out here to tell us we need to accelerate climate action. Would you tell us about what your experience at Tartha was on that day? You've told us a little bit, but you told that town hall audience what it was like to imagine, you know, the destruction, even though your own house wasn't destroyed, but you, you, in that moment you could do nothing but just imagine. And then the fire jumped over this enormous, listen, this is a huge river, bigger rivers, a very wide river, but the fire apparently, the cinders jumped across there, can hardly imagine it. Tell us what, a little bit more about that day, just to describe it. Mm. It's a day that you, anyone who lives in the bush or in the country will have an awareness about bushfires. And you'll either have seen a bushfire or you will know about the risk of bushfires. But it's largely intellectual until you've been in one. Um, I was unlucky that I was in Melbourne during Black Saturday and that devastating event taught me so much about awareness and lack of awareness and what happens to communities and the nature of fires in this new era Mm. where climate change-related fires are so much more devastating. So I had that in the back of my mind, but I... And I lived... I live in a forest mm. and I've always said I live in a matchbox. Mm-hmm. That's to remind myself that where I live is precarious in that sense to bushfires. But I still never thought it would really happen. Mm. You just don't. You, you always think the sirens are for someone else. You see the people on the news, you know, standing outside their flat in the, in the middle of the city. They've had mm. a fire in their pyjamas and you mm-hmm. think it happens to those people. You never think it will happen to you. Well, I didn't and I think I'm not, I'm not entirely alone. But you still prepare. We prepared. 
And yet on the day we were taken by surprise because it was so late in the fire season. If you're not home at the time a fire starts, there's very little you can do if you can't get back. You, mm. you will likely lose your home if you're not there to do that last minute mm. stuff of putting wet towels and mm. my partner was able to get in and turn sprinklers on and things. Um, but he took nothing, one tin trunk of a few photos and things, but everything else I own and he owns was in that house. So to, to then feel that helplessness, mm. the, yeah, very raw helplessness of being refugees for that short time, we were lucky that we didn't lose the house, but we were refugees standing mm-hmm. on that riverbank watching this swirling, growing, beautiful, terrible thing rising up, just getting bigger and bigger till it was blotting out the sun. Mm-hmm. It was coming almost straight for us, but we had the river in between and we felt physically safe. Yeah. But the sense of threat, the size of the threat, the speed of the threat, the sense that everybody else around us was also in horror and confusion and that the services were confused as well. Like It was clear that we were not ready for this to happen. Mm. Well, one of the ways to make sense of what happened is storytelling, and I think you said that at Collingwood Town Hall, and I believe there's a group here that meets at the Tathra Hotel, and, um, I, and so the people are putting together their stories if they can bear to go back and think about it and it's therapeutic for some people perhaps it's not for others but that'll be like a a store of knowledge and I read a few of the stories that were on the internet and one detail I noted was that Tathra is a bad spot for mobile reception and that someone said oh we should have battery powered radios uh, to pick up information in an emergency can you tell us since March what other things like that have come up maybe in in the council or things that you've thought of to better prepare communities for the next time yeah look this is the resilience we've been talking about and I've also been um, since um, since the fire talking to a group of people who are who are leaders in activism in their communities and they were interested also in having uh, putting together a group of people who might also assist communities in getting ready for events like this because it's one thing that was really clear to me was you need to personally be ready you can't rely on anything other than yourself at the time because you don't know where and when this will happen mm. and you can't ever know how prepared even your neighbours are let alone the services around you and because and, it might happen while you're on holiday somewhere which mm. it did to people in Tathra the town was full of tourists who had to rely on us having our act together to keep them safe because mm. they wouldn't have had a fire plan while mm. they're on holidays so it was really clear to me that the the single most important thing is for you to have figured it out for yourself what is in place here go and ask talk to your rural fire service or your your town fire service Talk to your council. Ask them what the plan is. Go and find out where the the, the recommended safe places are, mm-hmm. and know what your own escape plans are. I know um, other countries like Cuba, for example, is very famous for its evacuation of people, and they have cyclones very mm-hmm. frequently, huge ones, and. So they they have a very low rate of death in that, Mm. even though they're massive cyclones, because they have communities like that, but it's organised. The people already know who their community captain is and that block, it's all in blocks, and I think they have lots of meetings to more or less synchronise what they're going to do and what they can do. So I think in Australia we're rugged individuals and we need to perhaps copy some more communitarian countries, Mm. my, my thinking is... 
But um, how did this community cope with the aftermath, with all the evacuated people? Um, I heard that there were vets going down to the bigger showground to help people who'd had pets that might have been burned or weren't, and they'd lost their homes. How did the bigger Valley Shire, did they have what they needed? Did they have the resources they needed? Were they prepared? Uh, yeah, I think council... <laughs> Certainly, Bigger Valley Shire Council did have a really good plan in place and they were able to trigger that straight away. So they had an evacu- they had an uh, emergency control centre already prepared and ready f- to have the services step yeah. into and work from there. Um, the, and there are lots of local services like Red Cross and um, the, the Show Society who all were ready to just open up the show, showgrounds building. Red Cross were in there. Other services were in there. There was such a, a swell of community support and compassion that the whole affected town and region and people were very much held by that mm. response. And I think that's just normal human behaviour. Mm. There's nothing special about us. That's mm. what every community does when you see someone nearby in a, a disaster. Um, it does make me question things like we, we showed such generosity towards the people who lost their homes which we should, but then this little thing in the back of my head was going, why don't we do that for the people who were already homeless and have been for a long time? So it, it brought up all these other dilemmas, mm. kind of just weighing up how we respond to people in need and why we respond more strongly to certain situations than others. But the very best of behaviour happens mm. in, in times of crisis like that, a big dramatic crisis where many people were affected and we, and we knew of them or they were neighbours or they were mm-hmm. the next town along. But we had offers of help from shires all across Australia actually donated not just money but resources, so mm-hmm. staff and you know a lot of the, the workload that Bigger Valley Shire Councils had after the fire has been able to be distributed to other shires. You know, school kids from schools way away were writing letters of support and sending them in. So there yeah. was, it, it really is a, a touch point for compassion, mm. and it was absolutely heartwarming and wonderful to be the recipients of yeah. of that beautiful feeling. Yeah. But um, I interviewed people after uh, Hurricane Debbie up, and I think it was the Lismore area, and the huge flooding there. And, and even like 18 months later, a lot of people still living in caravans, families had broken up. All sorts of like ripple effects had happened. And I wonder, is this part of resilience awareness? It's not just on the first couple of weeks afterwards. Absolutely. And that, and all along, I've I've been thinking the, I I know what the waves of um, of Adrenaline and then relief and guilt and it's a bit like going through grieving and it's an extremely long process at 10 years and there'll be people who never recover. That's the saddest thing. We, we're we not all coming to this fresh as a daisy. <laughs> Some of us have had experience and traumas of, mm. of significant events in our lives and, and that the fresh event will hit them the hardest and because in those days afterwards the services are all there there's yeah. a lot of, there's a big circus around it mm. and it's hard not to feel supported and and everybody's watching from everywhere mm. and then the circus moves on and as it has to life resumes and it's okay to go and get help years later you know <laughs> it's fine okay we're talking to councillor joe dodds from the um, country town of bega and uh, she is in the bega shire council 
Let's get back to the national level with the Prime Minister because that's how you <laughs> became so prominent. We know our Prime Minister understands climate change. He even launched one of Beyond Zero Emissions reports. We had a packed Sydney Town Hall and he got up there and talked about how renewable energy was where the future climate change was the major threat. He, we know he knows. But then when the South Australian um, <clears throat> storm wiped out all their power lines and they had blackouts, he made political capital by blaming renewable energy. Barnaby Joyce, Josh Frydenberg, they all made comments along that way as it was, they were just ready with their message. And then um, I, I noticed also in the drought-stricken areas, he, he may have mentioned climate change, but he told the people, you need to be resilient. And I heard on Radio National people saying, we're as resilient as we can be. This drought's been going on for... Uh, then he came to Tathra and he made it seem like... Uh, undignified to mention climate change and said it had nothing really to do with this bushfire. Um, I'd like to know if you were Prime Minister or if you had a chance, as you said, to talk to him, what would you like to say? What would you like to see in a really resilient message coming from someone at the top? To begin, I, I want to acknowledge that I understand how complex it is now since I've got into local government, which is less than two years, so I'm still a complete newbie. But I get how complex it can get. I get that there are unseen, unheard arguments and messages that he or whoever's in leadership yeah. is dealing with. So I do understand there's a background to this. What I want to do is invite all of our leaders at all levels to step forward and join hands with communities like mine, with people like me who are prepared to step up out of a community and say, this is what happened and this is why come and talk to us and use us as your shield against the doubters mm. and the naysayers because we have stood at the front line of climate change. We have got the ash in our hair. <laughs> we have got the, the smoky relics mm. of our burnt houses in our hands. There's a power in having experienced that that can't be argued down with political nonsense. Mm. So I would like those leaders to talk to those people at the front line, to find champions to join with, and then for those leaders to have the courage that we've had to have in the face of those events, I want them to have the same courage to stand up to the same storms that are the political storms they're going to have to deal with because it isn't going to be easy. They are going to cop a lot of um, abuse and, and, and takedowns and, mm. and nasty politics when they tell the truth about climate change and it's got to the point in Australia where when you say those words and I'd stopped saying them two years nearly two years in local government and I wasn't saying the words climate change because I'd absorbed that it was a dangerous thing to say them so I'd stopped saying it and when the fire came and I looked at what was really dangerous yeah. I went this is no good I'm not doing my job I'm going to say the dangerous words and I'm going to keep saying the dangerous words until I make them real and I make it a safer space around, at mm. least around me, where other people can say those words. Mm. So I'm inviting our leaders to have the courage to name the problem first and then to name the solution. And they know bloody well what that solution is. It's to embrace renewable energies, to not tell lies about the dangers, perceived dangers of renewable energies, to recognise the work of places like the Australian Capital Territory, mm. which is aiming to be 100% renewable mm. by 2020, I think. Mm. It's 2018. That's only two years away, and they know they can do it. They're on track to do it. Mm. And the reason is because there's not the toxic politics in that 
mm-hmm. um, territory to stop them doing it. So they'll do it, they'll achieve it, and it'll be done. Mm-hmm. So there's the proof. I've lived off-grid for 18 years. That's 18 years without a power bill, mm-hmm. right? I've replaced the batteries once in 18 years. I've saved a phenomenal amount of money doing that. Mm-hmm. It, and, and so the same with my neighbours who lived on that same mm-hmm. road. So it, we know it's possible on a personal level mm-hmm. to be completely off-grid, yet now there are much better systems, smart grids, things mm-hmm. like that, battery banks like South Australia has. There are so many ways of achieving what needs to be done. The only thing that's getting in our way is toxic politics. Yeah. Well, I love the idea of shield of people with this experience because often we say it's conservatives and conservatism, it seems to have got a really bad name because I, I, I would call myself a conservative, a conservationist. I don't really want things to change. I don't want climate change. I would like things to go back to the traditional way we had where all the seasons just fell into yeah. place. <laughs> so I just love the idea of people with perhaps a you know conservative background, probably they're liberal voters, going and talking with you as this sort of human shield <laughs> and then the Prime Minister taking you into the Cabinet and saying, listen, all these guys actually vote for us and um, this is what they say. Look, you said climate change is not a political matter. It is a devastating fact caused by our failure to rise above politics. So obviously it's above party politics. What, what do you want to say about that? Yeah, guys, get your heads together. Get your acts together. It is not, this is not the toy to play with to play politics with and I've seen I can't remember what it was locally recently there was an issue that that they decided they would rise above and they would um, they'd have a non-partisan approach to this as we should with health as we should with education you know there there are certain fundamental principles which we all know at at base we agree with and not having the temperature go up by one, two, three, four degrees to the extent that the ice caps melt, to the extent that our Great Barrier Reef is destroyed forever, to the extent that the beaches of... We're a beach-going country. People don't realise there won't be beaches. When when the sea level rises and, and big storms like we, the east coast low we had uh, in 2016 utterly destroyed beaches down the, the south coast here... That's the stuff we're looking at. We don't get our acts together. There isn't a person alive who thinks any of that's a good idea. Mm. So it shouldn't be that hard, except that there are big, ugly forces who are making money out of us going in the wrong direction. That's the problem. Mm -hmm. We need to name that, and we need to hold them accountable for the damage the rest of us are suffering. Thank you very much. So we've been speaking to uh, Councillor Joe Dodds, who spoke up to the Prime Minister after the Tathra bushfires. Cyclones Cast is pretty grim. Do you ever feel like just switching off? Well, don't. Switch on to Beyond Zero Emissions Community Radio Show every Monday at 5pm on 3CR and beat the doom and gloom to find out the latest actions and research in your community. BZE Radio at 5pm on Monday. Turn the tide, literally. Welcome back, listeners. We're talking about emergencies tonight. We've heard from Mark Crossweiler on the Canberra bushfires and the insufficient emergency response. We've heard about the Tathra bushfires this year. And I think from Joe, you know, a sort of feeling of an insufficient communications at least and definitely people feeling they were a bit on their own. Now we're taking an international take on this program 
problem of emergencies. Rob Rogema is an internationally renowned expert on climate adaptation and designing urban agriculture. He's a professor in the Faculty of Design, Architecture and Building at the University of Technology in Sydney. So welcome, Rob. Good afternoon. Good evening. Thanks for taking our call, Rob. Can you tell us first about the um, contact you've had with Dr. Salim ul Because listeners will remember that Bangladeshi climate scientist who was on this radio show with you last year during the floods. Yes, that's a very interesting story. After after a while, I got in touch with uh, with um, uh, Dr. Hook, um, and um, uh, we had a very very nice conversation about collaboration and how we could uh, could could help each other in achieving uh, a future, um, mainly orienting ourselves on a situation in in Bangladesh, how to create a more climate uh, proof uh, environment for the people there. What sort of thing were you thinking of to offer? Well, um, uh, to start with, uh, a lot of things that we can do as academics is uh, uh, collaborate collaborate, uh, collaborate um, academically, mm. um, exchange knowledge, and um, help each other with uh, finding new solutions. But I'd like to um, uh, make it more practical uh, always and uh, look at uh, concrete ways that we can actually uh, change the situation for uh, for the people in Bangladesh and in Dhaka. And there's a couple of issues that we that we um, discussed we could 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 look at. Uh, one of the um, uh, problems in Bangladesh that everyone uh, ha- has probably heard of is uh, the regular flooding of uh, of the country, uh, being a delta, being uh, very prone to flooding from from the ocean. And um, uh, coming from from the Netherlands myself, um, I can help uh, a little bit. Uh, to find solutions how to deal with that. Yes. And, well, one, one of your ideas yeah. you told us in the last program was to let the landscape flood. Stop trying to block it, but let it flood. And I and I wonder how that would work in a mega city like Dakar. It's not just a open um, floodplain. No, that's absolutely right. And um, it's um, uh, it's not a a thing that is that we just let it flood and then. Um, wait till the problem uh, occurs. Um, the, the idea is uh, to use the powers of nature. So the principles of nature. Um, uh, nature takes very good uh, care of itself uh, in, in, in almost every situation. And um, for instance, in the situation that um, that Bangladesh is in, um, a lot of sedimentation uh, is brought to the country and can actually shape. Uh, shaped uh, the country itself. Um, if we allow the mangroves in that that area uh, to grow back again, uh, dealing with uh, sea level rise and uh, and storm surges, we can recreate and not we but nature can actually recreate uh, the country and the landscape uh, to protect the rest of the country um, in Bangladesh. Uh, Dhaka is um, located uh, in the middle of the country. It's uh, not very close to the ocean. Um, so in normal circumstances, these floods from the ocean will not reach Dhaka. Uh, but Dhaka has a different problem uh, with the rivers running through the city itself. Um, and because of uh, rainfall and also a discharge uh, through the rivers, 
um, the city itself will flood regularly. And for that situation, uh, we cannot allow the city to flood uh, because then a lot of people will be in trouble. Uh, but what we can do in the city is to create spaces in the city where the water can go if that happens and the people are not uh, surprised uh, by water, uh, certainly uh, in their backyard or in their front yard or in their house. Well, you were a part of a project called the Dakar Productive City, and I learned in that that a lot of rainwater could actually be stored on rooftops or conveyed in elevated rivers. You had pictures of this in your in the um, project, and I thought, uh, could you describe that to listeners? And I wonder, is this possible with the existing buildings, or how would it work? Do they is this only possible if you're building a new satellite city, or how would you have these tanks of rainwater? Yeah, it, it is um, uh, uh, easier if you do that with a new city, of course, because then you can build everything as you wish. But even in existing cities, like like a city uh, like Dhaka, uh, this is a possibility. Um, the kind of uh, trick in this is that uh, we, sh- we need to capture the rainwater on the rooftops themselves and not wait till the water is... Um, discharged from the house, in the street, to the river. Um, So I always say we need to catch the raindrop as soon as it falls out of the air and then collect it and store the the water as high as possible um, on buildings, but also in the landscape. If there is a hill, for instance, try to uh, create a situation to store and capture the water there. And what we can do with that water, we can start using it because the Rainwater in general is relatively clean, um, and we can use it for um, uh, for for washing, for um, all kinds of um, of apl- uh, applications in in the household. Um, and we might even think of recycling water um, in a very natural way, uh, and probably use it even for the growth of food um, in that situation. Because in that project we we did a couple of years ago for Dhaka was. Uh, one of the suggestions uh, was to use that water uh, to grow food uh, on the roofs, on balconies, even on facades of buildings. And this way, not only grow food, but also green the city. Well, how has the the growing city prevented floods draining out to sea? And you had some other spatial strategies that could minimise the effect of flooding on on human life. Um, you mean... Um, well, I was thinking, you were, I think you were going to have like a circular river. It sounded like you wanted to yeah. reroute some of the rivers or cross, cross that's, make that's, the rivers right. a kind yeah, of a, yeah, a highway. Yeah, exactly. Um, because at the same, uh, on a very low scale on the rooftops, you can actually do like a city level. So if, if the, the, um, the length of the river is increased, um, and you could call it a circular river or... A river with which is which has lots of turns and and twists around it. Uh, you could actually um, uh, keep the water much longer in that system, so it will not flow um, and not flow over and not flood other areas. Um, and in this project, uh, we work with uh, with students um, and together with people from from Dhaka. And um, some of these images you have seen probably are uh, uh, a bit spectacular. Yeah. Um, uh, other images are, are, are uh, more modest, I would say. 
But in any case, these kind of innovations are necessary to uh, to, to deal with these kind of natural events. Um, and it's not easy in a city um, where so many people live. It's it's uh, 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 compared to Melbourne and Sydney, it's it's much bigger and much much more people live there. So. Also, they're living in a. They're living. It looks like in sort of informal settlements, so it's not planned by any city government or serviced by any city government. And what I did like about those extra rivers and cross rivers was that you could have floating markets there, and so food, fresh food, could be brought to where people are living quite quickly. Rather than, I think you said there's a problem of transport into big cities like that. With how how big is it? It's over forty million people, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, it's, I mean, it's, it's, it's huge. Yeah. So food spoils and people don't have refrigeration. Yeah. And if you had these floating markets, which you see in a lot of countries, floating markets, um, that would be quite a good thing. Uh, absolutely. And, and uh, floating market is part of the solution. Um, uh, once, the, once the food is produced in the city, you could actually directly uh, sell it um, on the water. Um, and... Uh, uh, that, that solves another problem as well because the traffic system in in Dhaka is is uh, over uh, or under uh, under capacity. So there's there's, there needs to, there's a there's a lot of, of problems in the whole traffic system. Yeah. And if you could use the water uh, also for transportation, uh, for instance, coming to and from these markets, uh, you will solve the other problem at the same time. Um, uh, that needs to be an integrated system. I, I think it's important to to stress that because uh, one rooftop and one floating market will not solve our climate problem in Dhaka. No, no. So we need to search for uh, one solution, for instance, in water and food, which solves also the traffic system mm-hmm. uh, problem. Um, and we need to look at those systems, especially in this kind of very complex cities, um, from a systemic point of view that we can solve the whole system uh, and not only a little bit and a little bits and pieces of it. Mm. Well, this is taking it from the drawing board to the planning office. What do you anticipate in a a foreign country like that, that these ideas would be accepted piecemeal or would you be able to persuade people that there's a systemic kind of improvement they could take on? Yeah, I think... Um, a bit, a little bit of both. Um, in, uh, in, uh, as we, as we uh, hear from the news, uh, Dhaka is, is politically also a tense city. Um, it's it's not an easy context to work in, um, and therefore it is, is it is less likely that the government will accept a complete systemic change uh, at once and say, well, that's what we do because there was a guy from from Australia that that, that, that came up with this idea. Um, what works in this kind of situation is that you do it step by step, an incremental approach, um, little projects and uh, little projects that grow over time. When people see the success of little projects, then they can, um, can, can imagine the next step and a bigger step. So therefore, we um, we were designing on two levels of scale: the, the whole system of traffic and water, but also the little uh, food roofs and the little uh, uh, food markets uh, we were talking about before. Yeah. 
That's right. And I think you had fish ponds on the lowlands as well and a lot of ways of having food. The theme tonight, we're running out of time, unfortunately. I've got about six more questions, but I'll have to just ask you this one about emergencies. Coming back to the theme of the moment of emergency, they know the flood's coming. And I was terribly impressed when Dr. Huck told me that um, really they have five million volunteers in the villages who will go out and warn people about a flood and they have built those sort of uh, quite big structures where people and their livestock can go and shelter. So they are saving lives that way and, and they're quite on the front foot. But in a big city like Dakar, how do how in an urban emergency when a flood is starting to really wreck everything, um, power lines down and people are in these unplanned, what, what do you think are the best sort of urban design features that could help those people deal with a flooding emergency? Well, it, we, we can we can always go to a place where uh, where where you can can be safe. But in a large city with so many people, like in Dhaka, it's not always possible to get everyone to those places because uh, the distance can be um, uh, too far. It can be uh, overcrowded. There's uh, all kinds of traffic jams. And you can imagine it. What um, I always uh, propose in these kind of situations is to create the capacity in the city itself so that the water, the flood, doesn't harm the people uh, that live there. So even in those unplanned uh, settlements, um, um, maybe the government, but I would would rather say the people themselves um, need to be a little bit educated but also need to see the importance of creating spaces where they can uh, welcome the water, so to say. Um, one of the, 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 the examples I often use is, is uh, implementing water squares, a square that is in use um, in a, on a daily basis for traffic or for, for playing for the kids. And, and, and in cases of flood, flooding, the water can go there, can be stored temporarily until the rain is over, until the flood is gone. And then it can be released very slowly to the bigger rivers. If you implement a lot of those elements, then the total flood can be minimized. And the water never will get uh, to the people. Um, so they don't have to leave their houses and, and, and go to, uh, to places where they, uh, where they um, uh, stay safe. Yeah. All right. Well, I have to finish there, but thank you very much for telling us that, and I really look forward to hearing more about it when you do go over to Bangladesh and collaborate a bit more with Dr. Salim Ulhaq, because I'm sure you'll have a very... That's for January. Oh, right. January going to... Yeah, I'm sure it'll be a very creative partnership. So thanks for talking to us, Rob. Thank you, Vivian. Thank you. Bye-bye. So... Wasn't that wonderful, listeners? This is this is the sort of thing that happens. He was on the radio with Dr. Salim Ulhaq. He he wrote to him straight afterwards, and Dr. Salim wrote back, yes. And now they're collaborating. So this is how I, one of I, my happiest moments in radio, really, that 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 connection could have been made, and we're hearing the fruits of it. Um, thank you tonight to the team. Uh, uh, 
our team tonight was Andy, Roger, and my name's Vivian. Um, also thank you to the Radiothon donors and to the Friday team, who I didn't really emphasise last week. I gave the impression that it was all just this Monday team, but we have two radio programmes. Friday, 8.30am is the te- technology talk um, and science sort of aspect on climate action, and they raised a lot of money as well. We've well and truly overstepped our target, and that money is now helping keep 3CR on air. I'd like to advertise a couple of things that are on, listeners, if you are in Melbourne. Uh, Northcote Town Hall. Now, that that is one of these emergency hubs. I saw a little film about it. People, they practice, you know, what it would be like to be in a, a sort of a storm situation where people have to be evacuated and they would go to Northcote Town Hall. So they're having a an emergency conference or a conference about emergencies and it's in September, on the 11th and 12th of September, if you'd like to write that down, check out the Darabin Council website for the uh, Climate Emergency Conference. This week, um, 18th of July, Thursday, at Donkey Wheel House, you can go and meet the Climate for Change group. They're a very nice sort of social group. We heard about them last week. Um, Sarah Brennan mentioned them as being a very good way of getting into this if you're a sort of person who just feels oh what can you do about climate change nothing well get involved with climate for change because they have these kind of intentional conversations and this thursday at donkey wheel house uh, which is right up the top of burke street 673 burke street near southern cross um they're having a film night 6 30 um it's called a plastic ocean and they're having drinks and uh snacks and you, you'll be able to meet really like-minded people there, 18th of July. Also, every Monday, Friends of the Earth in Smith Street, Fitzroy, has a regular climate action group meeting. And most importantly of all, next Monday, after the show, you listen to the show, and then I'd like you to come to the Clyde Hotel, which uh, we're having a trivia night. It's the Beyond Zero Emissions Winter Trivia Night. Um, I'm hopeless at trivia, but I'm hoping that Andy's really good at it. I'll I'll do my best. (laughs) He'll be good on the music questions, and um, I'm hoping some sport. But, you know, look, please come along. It it could be really good fun. There's nice food there at the Clyde Hotel. It's on the corner of Elgin Street and Cardigan Street, 6.30, Monday the 23rd, winter trivia, and you'll have great fun. If you want to book, or you should book really, you go to trybooking.com forward slash W-R-A-I. I don't know what that stands for. W-R-A-I. So trybooking.com forward slash W-R-A-I. Or if I was you, I'd call up Beyond Zero Emissions at Ross House in Melbourne on you know business hours and see if they can put you on the list. Each table seats six people, so bring your friends. So I think that's. Uh, well, I think we've covered nearly everything. Um, uh, I, I'd like to go out with a little bit of music, but please stay listening. After this, there'll be another environmental program, and next week Monday we are going back down to the farm. Beyond Zero Emissions is a not-for-profit research and education organisation. We design blueprints for a zero emissions economy. As climate change action becomes an emergency, leaders will use these well-researched plans that show a transition is possible from a 19th century fossil fuel-based economy with its climate-changing emissions to a zero emissions 21st century. Check out our website for reports on zero emissions energy, 
zero emissions exports and industry, zero emissions transport, zero emissions buildings, and zero emissions land use. Podcasts of our shows contain a who's who of community action and climate solutions. They're all available on the web at bze.org.au. We'd love your ideas for this show, so contact us at radioteam at bze.org.au or even write to us, care of Radio 3CR, 21 Smith Street, Fitzroy, Victoria. You can make that attention, BZE Radio.